Hey everyone, welcome back to Anti-Monitor. This week we'll be examining the MCU's smallest effort thus far, 2015's Ant-Man. But first, Jared and I take a positive look toward 2016 as we discuss some of our most anticipated projects in film and TV. In the meantime, we'll attempt not to grump so much as we go subatomic all over these ding-dang Marvel movies. Listening to Anti Monitor from DoomRocket.com. I knew it. I'm surrounded by assholes. I'm not even going to dignify myself with a response to that. That's right. It's Anti Monitor time again. My name's Matt Birdman Fleming. Sitting across from me, as always, is Jared Jones, editor in chief of DoomRocket.com, and man with very powerful eyebrows. Uh, yeah, dude. That's pretty weird, right? Mm, it's just how I was born. Well, uh, I don't want to cut you short, but. We've got a little thing to talk about, and that would be uh, today's movie. I hope it's not bugging you too much, but we're talking about Ant-Man. That's right, Ant-Man. The, uh, the the little Marvel movie that could. That's right, and um, it did. It did. And uh, it was actually my first screening, so it'll be interesting to come into this yeah. conversation with a lot of new thoughts. And I got some questions for you today. Yeah, that'll be good. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but before we get too deep into that, though. Questions. We got questions. We, we're we looking deep into our crystal ball this week. Uh, we're searching our souls about the things that we're looking forward to the most in the year 2016. Um, we ran a list last week of the most anticipated projects in comic books, video games, television, and film. Um, we were pretty happy with it, but we didn't get to ask our buddy Bird. So, hey. Bert, what do you think about 2016? What are you looking forward to seeing? Um, I'm going to say, I'm going to make a big, bold, bold statement right here mm. on internet radio. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to the Ghostbusters. The Ghostbusters, yes. I'm looking forward to four, well, three and a half pretty funny women. <laughs> I'm still not sold on Leslie Jones all the way, but... Well, Really? Yeah, just because I every time I've I've seen her on uh, Saturday Night Live, she's the one that kind of has to stop and look at the cue card and yeah. fumble around a little bit, but she'll get there. I, I'm always a, uh, I've never been on the uh, Melissa McCarthy train, so Melissa McCarthy can be pretty great sometimes. I have yet to see it. Everyone told me to see Spy. I skipped it. I guess I should see it. You should probably see it. Did you see it? Uh, no, but I'm saying that if you know, I've gotten the same feedback from people that. Oh, I see. The marketing kind of belied the actual output of mm-hmm. the movie Spy. Sure. I and mean, she's great in uh, Bridesmaids. Very funny. Uh, she And she has a very wide range. Yeah. I actually first saw her on Mike and Molly. I think a lot of people did. Also, I mean, I forgot that I knew her from Gilmore Girls <laughs> because... I'm just telling everybody right now, I used to watch Gilmore Girls all the time. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I mean... Kristen Wiig and Kate McKinnon Kate are... Kate McKinnon. Yeah, Kate McKinnon is one of my whoo, top five uh, favorite cast members of SNL right now. She is killing it this killing season. It. Holy cow. I, I haven't watched Saturday Night Live in like a decade. Mm-hmm. Even longer than that. I think I, I clocked out like around the time Phil Hartman died. Mm-hmm. Like I just can't get into the cast at all. 
But like anytime, like I see like a video with Kate McKinnon in it, mm-hmm. like Slate runs something or something, I check it out. Yeah, yeah. No, between her and uh, Cecily Strong, they they've got a really strong female presence. That's mm-hmm. what I'm looking forward to with this new Ghostbusters yeah. is to actually see a a movie where women are doing all the ass kicking mm-hmm. and not taking any names or orders from the dudes. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it's funny. They'll have Chris Hemsworth as the uh, token dude. In as this, their eye candy. Yeah, as their eye candy. He's like the Janine Melnitz. He's Kevin. On their staff. He's playing Kevin. Yeah. Um, uh, speaking of Ghostbusters, real quick, we got to pour one out for uh, the late, great David Margolis, who passed away just last night. Oh, my goodness. The mayor of uh, New York City in the Ghostbusters films. Oh, that is... Uh... That's a tough loss right there. Yeah, is. Yeah. He yeah. had a good long life, though. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But he was a, definitely a highlight of both Ghostbusters 1 and 2. Sure. Um, but yeah, I just really think that uh, given the team behind uh, this new Ghostbusters movie, Paul Feig, yeah. and all of these terrific women, uh, I think that people will be pleasantly surprised. I, I think all of the Ghostbusters hate is undue, mm-hmm. and it's just a bunch of... You know, men's rights, you know, the, the same people that don't want their guns taken out of their hands. They don't want their dicks being replaced with these women. I don't understand the uh, the approach. They're like, they're ruining our childhood. They're like rebooting this thing against, you know, our wishes. I'm like, dude, this is the Ghostbusters 3 that you want. You're getting Bill Murray. You're getting every living Ghostbuster being a Ghostbuster in this movie. They're passing the torch on to the next generation. This is the third Ghostbusters movie that you wanted. Now, what's the problem precisely? I talk to some people, some people that just come into my bar sometimes, and they like they tell me, like, it's pandering. It's a pandering thing. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. What do you mean pandering exactly? Do you mean, oh, uh, improving representation in women in Hollywood? You consider that pandering, and I consider you a chump. That's just how that works out. Oh, yeah. Uh, what about you, Jared? What's, uh, what do you, what, what's on your, uh, crystal balls, uh, I don't know, is that a radar that those have? Yeah, yeah, I got a radar. Um, well, one of the projects that's coming out very soon, next week, is, um, the next big leap for the CW. Um, these guys are gonna have to start putting out feature-length movies eventually, the rate they're going. Um, it's the next DC TV show, Legends of Tomorrow. I know it's difficult for you to fathom, but in the future, none of you are heroes. You're legends. Course plotted for 1975. All your worlds are about to change. You know, it's got the, uh, you know, shooter's row of uh, executive producers that have been handling Arrow and the the Flash, which you know I love, and Supergirl, which means that this uh, crossover between CBS and the CW is only inevitable. But Legends of Tomorrow... Yeah, tell uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about the Legends of Tomorrow for those that uh, have been sleeping on the Flash. Well, if you're sleeping on the Flash, you need to get on that shit. But Legends of Tomorrow is a... Uh, well, the easiest way to put it is uh, Justice League in, uh, Trapped in Time kind of thing, where um, uh, an assemblage of heroes from both shows are brought together by this one time traveler named Rip Hunter, which is awesome for people who read DC Comics and know the implications of that name. So many places this thing could go. I could only begin to start speculating what it means for the wider DC television universe, what it may have in store for, like, you know, expanded into film. Like, there's those whispers. I mean, uh, there's been an announced Booster Gold Blue Beetle movie. Um, Who knows if this ties into that? 
Uh, I could get into the whys of it, but it would take too long. But yeah, man, it's got Brandon Routh, our MVP last uh, mm-hmm. last episode for Superman Returns. He's back as Ray Palmer, the Adam, and he's the leader of this team, uh, bringing over Wetworth Miller, who plays Captain Cold in uh, The Flash. He's probably one of the best parts of that show. And, uh, of course, a few other people uh, from Arrow. And uh, the big villain, though, big time for me, Vandal Savage, who's currently running all sorts of havoc through the Superman books, um, is the uh, big bad from Trapped in Time, who uh, forces Rip Hunter's hand and brings all these guys together to, uh, to stop his evil reign. And he was he was just on the Arrow recently, right? Uh, he was, Arrow. They did uh, an Arrow Flash crossover, and he was the villain of those. And he, the guy, the, I, think, I think his name is Casper Crump, <laughs> or something like that. That's not too far an exaggeration, but that's not his name. You brought them. And dressed for the occasion, I see. We're only doing this because two lives aren't worth two cities. Well, in that case, you are wiser than I gave you credit for. He killed it. He was absolutely stunning in this in this thing and i and i thought i was gonna be like there's no way they could pull this off they pulled it off every time i think they can't do it these guys do it like this is a this is a show made by people that made gorilla grod gorilla grod yeah like a tangible thing on television holy holy free holies yeah that's something i'm looking forward to but enough about that well what else are you looking forward to in 2016 bird well it's uh i'm gonna stick with television uh three words for you buddy Mm. better Call mm. Saul. Better call Saul. I've been doing the right thing for all these years now, and where has it gotten me? Nowhere. You better pick up that phone <laughs> and give that man his due, because there's just there's something about the idea of a spinoff of of like one of the greatest, most lauded uh, television shows of all time. Sure. And it's just, it's just brilliant. Bob Odenkirk mm-hmm. is amazing. He's carrying a show about a lawyer, about yeah. the, about the origins of a lawyer, a shady lawyer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he's and it's gripping. Mm-hmm. And yes. you know, it's got humor, but uh, which is of course what Odenkirk is known for. Yeah. But he's got so much heart in this. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael McKeon in that show. Michael McKeon. Um, season two is going to feature Ed Begley Jr. <laughs> Who will probably play an equally smarmy lawyer. Maybe he learns, uh, you know, uh, God, J- maybe uh, yeah. Jimmy, Jimmy, whatever his last name is, is going to learn some tools of the trade from Begley and become the titular Saul Goodman. Yeah, it's going to be fun to watch that, uh, the evolution of Jimmy into Saul. Mm-hmm. Um and you know it's a, a a fan can dream. We've already got Mike Erman Trout featured as a, a featured character of the show. Yeah, which is just, awesome. Just imagine the everybody freaking out the first time Giancarlo Esposito shows up. You know, or the first time they see a Los Pollos er, er, Hermanos yeah. uh, sign or bag. See, that's what's kind of. Got me a little worried. Like the first season handled the the cameos really, really well, it, with the exception of the second episode where mm-hmm. you know that uh, drug dealer, that psychopath, drug, yeah, yeah, uh, throws him out in the desert. I'm worried that they're going to squeeze in Aaron Paul and this this Aaron Paul who has aged 
considerably since, you know, the beginnings of uh, Breaking Bad to try to kind of squeeze him in. I don't want Jesse back. I don't want Walter White back. I want those two guys gone, out of the periphery. Like, that's, that's not how the world works. It's not Star Wars where everyone kind of just bumps into each other despite daunting odds. Now, here's my question. And this is something I've been thinking a lot about. What's on your mind? Um, of course, the season begins with um, Jimmy, Saul, in the future, in post-Breaking Bad, yeah. trying to examine his life. And, you know, the only thing he finds meaning in, you know, is when he goes back to that VHS tape. Wouldn't it be something if they decided to flash forward and deal with some of the repercussions, some of the uh, hanging threads from the end of Breaking Bad. Well, see, that's another thing, is that, like, yeah, that would be a, a good way for them to go, especially if they're running out of ideas and or space uh, temporally between the beginnings of the show and what happens by the first time we first seen Saul Goodman in Breaking Bad. But the problem is, is that Jesse's end at the end of that show is so perfect and poetic for the character that mm -hmm. I don't ever want to see him again. Like, him just elated, like, almost insane with, like, relief that mm -hmm. he got to be removed from imminent death at the hands of these maniacs and just driving off into the night, just screaming and crying, and that, mm -hmm. that's beautiful. You know, I don't want that moment taken away. So, What about that moment that they reveal that Walter White didn't die in the uh, lab? Huh? What if they pulled that one? I don't know. And so that's the thing is it it all kind of depends on how they execute it. I think that mm -hmm. that's something that could 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 maybe won't, but that's oh. that's always in the back of my mind mm -hmm. is that that wasn't that bad of a wound. They get him to the doctor. They want to put him on trial. It was a gut wound, my friend. Yeah, no, well, it I've seen enough John Wayne movies to know when you're gut shot. That's oh, the story. That's, but that's no, nah, that that's old west. That's when they had bullets made of other bullets. Uh -huh. uh, well, what about you? What's uh, what's another thing that you're looking forward to in 2016? Well, the last thing I want to talk about before we move on to the task at hand is um, Doctor Strange. Oh, yeah, that movie, the the one Marvel movie that should probably have never been made, the most unlikely Marvel movie that would have ever been made, aside from Ant Man, um, Professor Weirdo. Doctor Strange has always been like one of these characters that always intrigued me. I always liked the concept. Uh, Stephen Strange being this like rat bastard of a uber genius, like kind of shades of Tony Stark now. Okay. But back in the day, you know, Tony Stark was, you know, over here. Doctor Strange was over here. Comic books operated independently of each other, but Marvel always zipped them up here and there. But it wasn't nearly as pervasive as the Marvel U is today. Um,. But the concept of Stephen Strange just being like this jerk until he's humbled, severe humbling. It's one of the concepts that I love most about stories, especially when you're dealing with heroes, especially when you're dealing with arrogant heroes, is that you need a humbling for that, for that, for that ship to land. And I think that they got the perfect actor to do it, Benedict Cumberbatch. I mean, here's a guy that could make you feel sorry for a giant dragon sitting on top of a pile of gold. Mm -hmm. uh, I only felt sorry for him a little bit. Like when he got splashed in that gold thing, yeah, that sucked for him. But Cumberbatch has the bonafides to actually give me a reason to care about Doctor Strange in a way that I think a lot of other people are going to too. And that's an exciting thing for me, is to have Doctor Strange in like the public consciousness beyond like, you know, Geek Central. It's like, mm -hmm. 
You're going to kids in the street running down the sidewalk with like weird, crazy, you know, uh, yeah, cowled uh, capes just flowing down the street, uh, screaming, by the hoary hosts of Hoggath. Like that kind of stuff I'm looking forward to. Um, and, but not only that, though, the cast. You've heard the cast. Yeah, but uh, you should recap the cast for everybody at, listening at home. Well, we got Chiwetel Ejiofor. Um I'm not clear who he's playing. I don't think anybody's clear on who he's playing at the moment. Um, we got Tilda Swinton playing the Ancient One. A little mm-hmm. gender-bending there, and, and not in a bad way. Um, Mads Mikkelsen as the Big Bad. That's pretty great. Yeah, Mads Mikkelsen as the Big Bad. Um, I, I mean, it's got Rachel on McAdams in it too, which I, you know, if you ever read my recaps on True Detective season two, I pretty much made my feelings about her pretty well known. I'm not too pumped to have her in this one, but that aside, I think this is going to be one of the most stupefying Marvel movies, probably since Guardians of the Galaxy. Well, you know, and that was one that nobody expected, but it really just it kicks ass. Mm-hmm. There's no other way to say it. Mm. It is, you know, it's it's got just enough edge. It's got just enough uh, fringe. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, that's going to be coming through with uh, Doctor Strange. Who's directing Doctor Strange? Oh, I forget his name, but he directed Sinister. Really? Yeah. First Sinister. Maybe the second one. I don't know. Maybe the second one? I don't care. But the thing is, is that he's not James Gunn, you know? Right. I think that uh, James Gunn was a fluke for the second phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You're going to get at least one auteur by accident. We don't know any of the director's names for Phase 3. Anything can happen in the third and final phase, presumably final phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So whoever ends up picking up, say, uh, oh, I don't know, Captain Marvel or Thor Ragnarok. Wait, no. Did they announce the director? I don't know. It's so hard to keep a track of all these things. We've got... Maybe, who knows, eight more damn Marvel movies before we're done with this thing? And then Infinity War. Yeah, you're right. Uh, just to answer that question, uh, Scott Derrickson... Scott, yeah, that sounds right. ...directed Sinister, mm-hmm. The Exorcism of Emily Rose, Rose, and this is the bit, this is the, kill, the kicker, The Day the Earth Stood oh. Still, also known as The Day... The stink, stank, stunk. <laughs> yeah, man. The day that, the day that Keanu Reeves finally got the perfect role as a space robot. You know, I said I wanted to avoid talking about DC movies today, but like that guy's presence on Doctor Strange is the same for me as James Wan directing Aquaman. It's like, yeah, you can do strange action movies. Can you do this action movie? I don't think so. Like I. I mean, I know that Entourage did it first, but James Cameron would have probably been a pretty damn good pick. Well, he's always going down into the deep depths of the mm-hmm, water. Mm-hmm. You know, he's always going down. He loves, sitting... he loves the water. He likes to splish, splash, and take a bath. <laughs> James Cameron would have been my pick for Aquaman, like, hands down. Probably would have gotten DiCaprio to play him, which I would have been far more uh, uh, happy with than... Uh, Jason fucking... Samoa? Jason Momoa. But let's not get down... Let's not go down that road. We don't road. want to go down that road. Holy cow. You have inherited the powers, but not the knowledge or the wisdom that must accompany them. Yet. What have I become? More than a man. Well, let's, uh, let's shift gears back to continuing talking about Marvel mm-hmm. and about the, um, you know, it's 
such a it has a strange place chronologically in the MCU, mm-hmm. and that's the um, partially uh, conceived by Edgar Wright and finished by Hayton Reed. Is that right? Reed, that's right. Um, Ant Man, Ant Man, Paul Rudd, <clears throat> Michael Douglas. Mm-hmm. CGI young Michael Douglas as yeah, well. Him too. Uh, the lovely Evangeline Lilly. Mm-hmm. The forever creepy and uh, and daunting Corey Stahl. Yeah. Uh, I love that guy. You know, I like him too. But um, before we get too deep into talking about Corey Stahl, I want to ask you. Mm-hmm. Because I, did, I deliberately didn't ask you. You watched Ant-Man for the very first time. That's right. Haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. I saw it the day it came, or the day before it came out. I got a review out the day of, um, and I remember describing it as cinematic and safe, or wait, no, squishy and safe, like mm-hmm. cinematic tofu. That's what I said. Yeah. What do you think of Ant Man? Uh, I would, I, I would definitely be on the same page with that. Um, having sat through this Ant Man, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a miracle. That it came out as good as it did. It, yeah. Uh, that it came out at all after all of the shit that happened between the, um, the Marvel execs and Edgar Wright. <sighs> I just really, I, I liked it. Mm-hmm. I think it's fun. It's a nice, fun Marvel time. I want to see Edgar Wright's Ant-Man. I want to see it too. We'll never see it. We'll never see it. I'm, there are all these little touches, and we'll talk about that mm-hmm. in a little bit. Um, but... It is, it's a movie about uh, a heist and about a dad. Mm-hmm. That's, it's, uh, it's a, it's like Marvel's closest thing to a, uh, a Hallmark card. A Hallmark card. <laughs> and it feels decidedly smaller. It feels like, uh, from the tales of the Avengers mm-hmm. to Ant-Man. You know, it, it doesn't feel like a, it, it's a standalone, but, you know, they, they had to get the Falcon. They couldn't get one, they couldn't pony up just a little extra money and have... Those guys can't make movies like that every five minutes, man. Just have, you know, Chris Evans show up for, uh, you know, before the very end of the movie, when they're literally just, and here, look at this clip from almost Civil War. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I totally agree. Uh, it is uh, infinitely smaller film than Marvel has made in a while, which I've found relieving. Yeah. Like, I'm I'm not suffering from superhero fatigue, am I? I feel that I am. I know that I'm not, because I'm looking forward to all these movies. I'm finally getting to see some of these crazy good superhero comics that are getting made into crazy good superhero movies. So I shouldn't complain much, but, I mean... <clears throat> Between the time where I grew up from reading comics and came around to enjoying superhero movies, I watched a lot of movies in between. So did you. Mm-hmm. We developed our own personal tastes. We find them. We finesse them. We developed opinions and abilities to deconstruct film, discuss film, all that stuff. And I find that that analytical part of my my analytical part of my brain <laughs> is constantly conflicting with my enjoyment of these movies. Your brain's of, anal gland. Right. It, um, when I was watching Ant-Man, I was like, love this movie. Love it. It's not an Edgar Wright movie. It doesn't have to be. I mean, yes, it has to be, but it's not, so just deal with it. After Age of Ultron, I wanted them to s- just slam on the brakes, and they did. 
Ant-Man wasn't even supposed to happen right now. Like, they just put it in at the tail end of Phase 2. The, the capper of Phase 2 was always supposed to be Age of Ultron. Ant-Man squeaked it in. Yeah. So I'm glad that it happened. Nice uh, palate cleanser before Civil War. Because if we had just had Age of Ultron and Civil War, uh, that would have been... That would have broken me in half. Probably. That would have been pretty rough. So, is approaching Ant-Man the way it is. It's quiet. It's a little humble. It realizes that it's not what it set out to be. And it feels like it. Mm -hmm. There are... Uh, you can hear the gears churning a little too loudly in some places. Uh, Paul Rudd is game. Understands that he's not in a lot of this movie. Movie's not really about him too much. It's really about Hank Pym. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's fine. It's harmless. It doesn't offend anybody. It's a film made by a committee for a mass audience. And that's exactly what it feels like. And I suppose there's nothing egregiously wrong with it. It's a superhero comedy mm -hmm. that comes very close in a lot of uh, spots to to having exceptional moments. Um, and there are a couple. There are, absolutely. Um, the auxiliary cast is pretty enjoyable. Mm -hmm. um, it takes it, it took me a minute to adjust to the, the Russian accent and that guy. And, <laughs> uh, I was fine with T.I. being in there. No one will be making with the uh, emergency call. Yeah. Or something like that. Something like that. There is no, is the, the, listen to my funny voice. Yeah, it's just a little too... Why do you, you have know. to have a Russian accent? Was that like some sort of like subtextual meta-commentary there? I was reading a little bit in the uh, Wikipedia, and the actor really got serious about this tiny role. Sure he did. And he's like, oh, I figure that this is a kind of guy who grew up, you know just past Siberia, who's, like, really into Elvis, and, like, okay, so that's why you've got the stupid uh, sideburns, and I don't know. Yeah, his name's David Dastmalkian. Dude was in The Dark Knight. Yep. Okay, he was the guy who shot, who, who tried to shoot uh, uh, Jim Gordon. Mm -hmm. Joker actually did it. Harvey, Harvey Drent steals him in the ambulance car and drives him to the docks and tries to kill him or something. And uh, you could tell that he was playing like a wonky looking guy and he looked off. And like in that scene when Alfred's like, he spent two times in Arkham. And you're like, you could look in his face and be like, yeah, that guy spent some time in Arkham. Mm -hmm. So he's, there's probably some method in that kid. I remember seeing him once in a Wendy's commercial and going, oh, Dark Knight's a Wendy's? Damn, that's dark. Mm -hmm. um, so having him here made me kind of happy because now he's a twofer. There are very few actors that have made that jump. It's true. So I, I appreciate it. Um, uh, I didn't hate him. I enjoyed him. He was in the periphery and the, you know, didn't bother me too much. T.I., though. Every time he opened his ding-dang mouth, you know what really bugged me about T.I.? Is that you said it, too. You said it out loud. I felt like I was about to be serenaded. You were about by to be some, rapped at. Rapped at. I was about to get rapped at. Every time he opened, because, like, everything had to be just, like, grandstanding with if him. He's, well, that's the thing, is if he strings... Uh, eight or more words together mm -hmm. it's just how it comes out it just comes out sounding so he like speaks a like with iambic pentameter yeah he speaks like a shakespearean actor um, like a shakespearean actor come uh atlanta rap uh scion sure well hey everybody just kick back and relax a little bit man we know our business 
We broke into this spooky ass house, didn't we? I let you. Well, one could say that I let you let me. Right. And then, of course, Michael Pena. Michael Pena. What a silly guy. He was pretty goofy. He was pretty movie. funny in this. I remember seeing him in the theater, or seeing the film in the uh, theater, and people were just like dying during those like exp expository like flash sequences. Yeah. And I love that you caught it too. You were like, that's Edgar Wright right there. And you were absolutely right. That was definitely an Edgar Wright floor story. The camera pans over and everyone's making the face like, yeah, I know, right? And guess what? She's got mad skills and things like that. Like, it's a really entertaining scene. It's a really effective way to, you know, get the plot moving it forward. Right. But Michael Pena's del delivery of it, both times, it happens twice. Is I'm glad it happened twice. Pretty and dealt well the second time. It's really cool because mm -hmm. it drops a big old Easter egg in everyone's face that they've been waiting for. Like he comes up to him and says, yo, I'm looking for this dude who's new on scene who's like flashing this fresh tack who's got like bomb moves, right? Who you got? She's like, well, we got everything nowadays. We got a guy who jumps. We got a guy who swings. We got a guy who crawls up the walls. You got to be more specific. Spider-Man. Yeah. So it's like, uh, I, I enjoyed him. He does wear a little thin in places. Yeah. He, his, uh, and, and I don't think it's entirely his fault because it's, it's where you see the rewrites and the shoehorns kind of coming in where he's like, plus your girlfriend's really pretty and they're like, make me nervous, mm -hmm. you know? And, and it's like, okay, so well, someone le leans on him in a couple of places, just like it leans on Paul Rudd, yeah. like Michael Douglas and Evangeline Lilly are having this really heartwarming moment where they have this catharsis about their dead mother, the mm -hmm. wasp. And, like, we get that fucking amazing story. And, like, there's this really huge traumatic moment right in the middle of this crazy heist movie. And all of a sudden, Paul Rudd's like, yeah, you guys are doing great. This is awesome. I'm going to go make some tea. Yeah. You know, it's like Michael Pena serves the same function as Paul Rudd. So that's one actor too many. Mm -hmm. And when you put them in a room together, it's like, okay. So it's like Age of Ultron where everyone's... Quip, 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 quip. 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 It's quippy. That's it is. To, to say the least. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know... Uh, when Paul Rudd is the voice inside the suit, mm -hmm. Ant-Man feels really, like, warm. Yeah. You know? Well, he, he develops that relationship with Antony. Yeah. Oh. Pour one, one for out. Antony. Pour one out for Antony. Yeah. Uh, but he, you know, he grows to really, like, like the ants. Mm -hmm. um, you know, of course it happened over the course of a montage. One montage. One montage. It was like a montage broken into two, though. Yeah. Because it was montage of him not doing very well. And then montage of him and doing well. And, and then they stop and have that moment between him and Evangeline Lilly where she finally, like, lets, lets like, a little bit of her guard down. And she's like, mm, maybe I'll bang you later. <laughs> Whereas by the end of the movie, she's just full on like, oh, yeah. I'm banging you I now. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and then the second half of the montage of just, like, yeah, him, like, doing really well at Doing Ant -Man. so well, in fact, that he can infiltrate the Avengers compound in northern New York State uh, and take on the one Avenger they could afford at yep. the time. Anthony Mackie. Anthony Mackie's Falcon. But I love Anthony Mackie. I do, too. I, like I think him. he's great as the Falcon. I think that no one else could be the Falcon now. Like, when I watched Civil War, excuse me, uh, Winter Soldier, um, and Anthony Mackie and... Uh, uh, Chris Evans are having like this dialogue and they're talking like, you know, two veterans who've seen some awful things in war and like there's pathos there and Anthony Mackie's got the, got the chops to convey that. So to have him like fully realized as a superhero, just zoom in literally in this film as a realized superhero, that's him arriving. 
mm-hmm. into truly arriving into the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. By the end of Winter Soldier, he is kind of just stuck beside Captain America because if he doesn't, someone's going to ping him with a bullet. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to stand next to the Super Soldier with the uh, vibranium shield. And Ant Man, he's on his own. And what happens? Because his, his ass kicked. His one day, his one day of detail. <laughs> he's like, ah. Uh, you better make sure Cap knows. It's very important to me that Cap knows this never happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, super goofy. Mm. And uh, But, you know, it was a nice way to establish Ant-Man as being on, somehow, already on the level with, you know... An the, Avenger. The, an Avenger. But Even if it's, me. like, entry-level Avenger. Mm-hmm. But what, why did Anthony Mackie have to break out the twin guns? Like, that was his first response? Like, the guy showed no threat... They get into a little push and shove, and the first thing he does is he pulls out the two guns, goes starts blasting away. What if he had actually killed Paul Rudd? Oh, <laughs> man. And because you imagine, like, a bullet actually hitting tiny Paul Rudd, he would end up looking like that uh, Mary Had a Little Lamb when um, oh. Darren Cross melted it. Yeah, Darren Cross. Darren Criss Cross. Yeah, that was, uh, you know... Darren Double Cross. Darren Double Cross. I kept wanting to just call him Criss Cross, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, yeah, he, he definitely double-crossed and crisscrossed and got his wires crossed. and Corey Stahl. What do we make of Corey Stahl as a villain? Well, so our first experience with him, of course, was uh, when we were watching House of Cards. Well, my first experience with oh, him okay. was in Midnight in Paris, Woody Allen movie. He played, I'm not making this up, Ernest Hemingway. And he was so good as Ernest Hemingway. I was like, who the fuck is this guy? Googled him as soon as I got out of the theater. I'm like, I don't know who this guy is. Saw him again, bald as shit, house of cards. Wow. I mean, I think that that's uh, definitely the key is like, shave his head. He is immediately, he knows how to be intimidating. Mm -hmm. He's big. Yeah. Um, And he also, like, he knows how to throw in a little charm mm-hmm. and kind of toe that line. Yeah. But then once he goes past that line, he gets sadistic. Yeah, he's got this creepy little crooked grin. His eyes glint and glaze over a little bit like he's about to cry. He knows how to make an evil face. Yeah. Problem was is that Darren Cross, I mean, Darren Cross is quintessentially an Ant-Man villain. Yeah. I mean, he's intrinsically tied to the mythos and uh, more so with Hank Pym than uh, Scott Lang, although the current run of Ant-Man and now Astonishing Ant-Man does well to tie cross as Scott Lang's nemesis cause movie. Yeah. But um, the one thing that kept chapping my ass was like this whole plot, like this whole subplot with Darren Cross and Hank Pym is identical to the first Ant-Man movie, or Iron Man movie. And I think that's where a lot of the success comes with Ant-Man, at, le- at least thematically, is because mm-hmm. it's almost... Word for word, as far as the overarching plot goes, an identical rehash of Iron Man, wherein genius develops tech that is coveted by other genius. Other genius isn't smart enough as first genius, so Mm -hmm. other genius concocts a ruse to put the kibosh on first genius, steal first genius's tech, and then make a shittier version of the good tech that's already been finessed, and then die horribly. Also, he's bald. Mm Mm-hmm. So, like, instead, every time I saw Darren Cross, I kept seeing Jeff Bridges. And it was getting to me after a couple times. I'm like, come on, guys, come up with something else. Let's do this. Make it happen. But they never made it happen. 
So all they rely on is uh, really awesome, really spectacular action sequences. Yep. Like edgy seat action sequences that get you moving. Absolutely. But another thing that chat me was them shrinking down, making, you know, funny little you know, product placement, you know, in jokes. Like, oh, you mean when they were in the uh, the briefcase sponsored by Apple and Lifesavers? Yes. And then, of course, uh, I guess PBS dropped a time on. <laughs> for Thomas the Tank for Engine. For Thomas the Tank Engine. Like, the, like a whole... I'm action. sure. I'm sure that that entire, like... Uh, final fight sequence in that tiny world again feels very much like an Edgar Wright idea yeah like let's have a train let's have a classic like villains fighting on a train but because they're small it's happening on a kid's train set mm -hmm. and the I kids watching. a lot yeah. and the kids watching it's really weird because I've never seen toy uh tiny toy trains explode like that with such yeah, you know, just like because they were packed with napalm, right? Just because you have like an incendiary like laser beam, doesn't mean that the a tiny plastic toy is going to burst Explo into flames. And it nor might. nor will that that train engine. I don't care whose face is on the front of it. It once you blow it up to mammoth proportions, all of a sudden starts sounding like an actual uh, a train. train. Yeah, it sounds like a plastic thing that got huge. Yeah, you know it's. It said it plows through the house and it goes, and it lands on top of the cop car. I'm like, who put that sound effect in there? Fire that man or woman or whoever. Or horse. Or horse. Fire that horse. Fire that horse. Who let that horse in here? <laughs> That's a weird looking dog. Yeah. So, But like the, the big spectacle of Ant-Man is a small one and that's very deliberate. But... The flourishes are so creative that you can't imagine that the three other dudes that wrote this screenplay came up with it came from Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish. Like, mm -hmm. these two guys were, like, funneling ideas back and forth to each other for God knows how many years? How many years were they working on this thing? Forever. Like, watching Ant-Man do a backflip over the gun barrel as a bullet flies right past him? That's Edgar Wright yeah. right there. That was part of the uh, uh, the, the test footage. That the they sizzle did. reel that yeah. they showed uh, uh, the San Diego Comic Con way back when, um, like when Scotland goes subatomic, like that's some oh other, my god, that's some seeing it in the theater. Yeah, freaked me the fuck out because I, you know me, I used to like my drugs. Back I was gonna say you were probably on acid. Saw some stuff when I was younger, and like that kind of stuff. Just like anytime I see it in a film, I like get transported back and it's like very unnerving because then your soul's released into the cosmic ethos and you're just kind of like I'm Ether. alone either and I'm alone in the universe I'm gonna die um that's what that scene made me feel like and that, that scene is like a pure like viscerally like cinematic moment had to have came from no one else but Edgar Wright yeah absolutely I mean it's definitely uh kind of visually the heir apparent to the uh transformation at the end of tw of uh, 2001 that light show that just, you're just like mm -hmm. what is going on yeah and it just yeah it's really beautiful um it, it's it's spooky too because you know they did their science on it yeah and they did like um there's a vfx video online that talks about how like they chart like you know as far as like you can go subatomically i mean we can only chart it so far because you know we're not that yeah <laughs> we can't see that deep but we can see pretty goddamn deep, and they were just showing like a visual, and it, and it got you know absurd after a while because like you know 
It has to. Mm -hmm. But, like, watching him actually shrink deeper and deeper, and the dander starts to form crystals and, like, crevices, and before you know it, those crevices are, like, caverns, and you're just going deeper and deeper into this thing. Like, watching it at the theater, you felt the shrinking. Like, you felt that happen. That's, like, that's some Marvel magic right there. That's some Disney magic. Yeah. Because that only could have came from Disney money. That's true. I mean, Ant-Man is officially the, I guess, the third Disney paid for. Uh, I guess Marvel's got their own cash and money, but, like, you know, the Disney bucks are in there. Michael Pena was busted, you know, whistling It's a Small World After All. I don't think I didn't catch that. Of course. Um, but, yeah, like, the, like innovation like that that happens in movies, it's like, when you talk about the power of cinema, what moves you to another place, transports you in your mind, that's one of the few times a Marvel movie ever actually did that to me. That's why I appreciate Ant-Man more than I would otherwise. More than I definitely do Age of Ultron, I can tell you that. You know, and it's just... It really is unfortunate that they had to take this project out of such uh, daring hands mm -hmm. as Edgar Wright. Well, Edgar Wright doesn't conform to a house style. He's is he an auteur? Can we call him that? I think so. Is he that it's official safely. title? Yeah. Um, when you have a, a director with his own vision that's so unique, and that unique vision contradicts what you know. A bunch of suits up to and including ball cap wearing Kevin Feige, um, then one person's got to go, and it ain't the ain't the dudes with all the money, right? So Edgar Wright got a paycheck, was asked quietly to leave, got a producer's credit, got a writer's credit, story credit, and that's your mother. There you go. So, at um, but by the end of it, once the film was in the can, you cannot remove his touch because that man was attached to the project. For way too long for it not to have happened. Right. Had, oh, Jesus. Peyton, if Peyton Reed had eradicated every single flourish that Wright contributed to this film, it would have been 100% worse. Absolutely. And I think he understood that. I think he's filmmaker enough to know when good ideas are good ideas. And there are a lot of good ideas in Ant-Man. There are. And, uh, you know, you're completely right. It's, it's a safe... Marvel movie. It's squishy. It's squishy. It's mm. um, the emotion is pretty real though. Yeah. When uh, you know when this dad and his daughter, both well, two times, two times, dads and daughters having very like emotional mm -hmm. embraces. That's deliberate, you know. And yeah, that's I know. <laughs> I know what parallels are. <laughs> Duh. Yeah. Duh. Uh, but no, I they, they deliver. Mm -hmm. You know, it got me. It got me to twitch a little. Yeah. Well, when you put like a you know. A little child on a film with toys and squeaky little face. Missing and her front teeth. Missing her front teeth. And she talked like this a little bit. Like, you get all gooey. Yeah. You want to go and you know, buy her like $50 worth of shit from Target or something. You know? You take her on a Toys R Us raid. Yeah. And like, and buy then, ice cream. and be You know, the power, the power of of a child's love, you know, bursting him through back into... Atomic for land. Con for context, the people who are listening, you don't know Bird. He has an, a wonderful niece who is wonderfully beautiful and sweet. And and I've got another one that is very likely to be born by the time this actually hits the internet. Is that so? Oh. Any day now. Well, congratulations. And I mean, it's, you know, niece or no niece, I'm yeah. I'm a sentiment guy. You are you a sentiment with the guy. sentiment, and I. But you're not a schmaltz guy. No, I'm not. Sh no, there's there's schmaltz. And there's schmaltz in this movie. That's definitely 
definitely the weakest part of this movie. The thing that I liked the least was the schmaltz. Bobby Cannavale is yeah. the schmaltzy, schmaltziest schmuck in this movie. Like, he's he, he lays it on so thick that he's a superior father to Cassie, right in front of Scott, throughout the entire movie. I'm like, if you were a cop, Scott would put you through a goddamn door, you <laughs> chump. How dare you? Yeah, he made bad decisions. He's not a violent man. He's not an awful man. And you don't get to have a moral superiority cause, because you're a cop and an inadequate cop. How many times do we watch him buffoon his ass through, like, actual police procedure in this movie? How many times? Uh, lots. So many. Every. T.I. took his car on a joyride down one city block and somehow escaped their gaze. Yep. Made it back into the van. Yep. Only chance he knew, and the only detective work, because he is a detective in this <laughs> movie, by the way. Only detective work that he employs in this movie is when he hears the La Cucaracha horn from the same van that Scott honked at his little uh, uh, step uh, girl. Yeah. Ah, made me so mad. And what's Judy Greer doing in this movie? Like um, it, She was in Jurassic World in the exact same role. The yeah, mom, except... <laughs> the crappy mom. Yeah. Uh, that's it. That's I think that's what she's doing when she's not... Uh, it's like she'll get a nice paycheck from doing that, mm -hmm. and then she goes back to voicing... Um, the oh, I can't think of her name now, but the ditzy one on Archer. She goes and have has fun doing that, and then once a year, someone will hire her to, or once or twice a year, hire her to be a mom or a monkey or uh, a monkey. That's right. As she was in uh, Dawn of and soon to be War for the Planet of the Apes. Yep. Um, and you know, anytime they get the Arrested Development stuff going again, it's always like, oh, and then. Judy Greer's gonna show up with uh, I like enlarged Judy breasts. I do too. I like her. I like her a lot. She's I don't get better much. than this. Well, I mean, everyone wants to be in, in a, a marble ding, movie, in, in a ding dang marble movie. Mm -hmm. But like, at what cost? At what cost? Because like, they can't pop. Not everyone's gonna be a superhero. Everyone's all these people. It's like the like I said in another podcast when we were doing Thor. Like it became like the Woody Allen movie. Where everyone just wants to be in a Woody Allen movie. Don't care who they're... They'll be an extra sitting at a bar if it means they get to be in a Woody Allen movie. Or a Star Wars movie. Or a Star Wars movie. I'll be an alien in a suit. Are you aware that we're going to be living in a world where Felicity Jones is opening a Star Wars movie? That's crazy. Felicity Jones has been making movies longer than we've been running this podcast, it feels like. Yep. Saw her in uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2. Yes. We covered that, right? Yeah, uh, we didn't talk about Felicity Jones. But... Oh, yeah, but we talked about Amazing Spider-Man 2. Yeah, absolutely. It was one of our first uh, first forays into oh, this. That's hot. All right. I'm starting to forget episodes. That's, that's right. It's a good sign. Twelve episodes in, and we were already forgetting the old stuff. So she was, like, not even on the, the, the title scroll for Amazing Spider-Man 2 just three or four years ago, and now, boom, opening a Star Wars picture. And then not only that, Mads Mikkelsen, Marvel... Movie, Star Wars movie, by the end of next year. That's crazy. Isn't that insane? Just It's amazing. These two franchises are stuffing all the amazing people into these movies, and, and it's making me dizzy. It's because they've got a... a this... Uh, the Marvel franchise has become an ATM <laughs> for Disney. Yeah. And Star Wars... I mean, we're not even talking about Disney movies. Mm -mm. Disney has movies still. Yeah, but that are stink. Disney movies. Yeah, they, I mean, they, they, they suck. They're The Huntsman. Pan. Yeah. Uh, Maleficent. The Jungle Book. The Jungle Book. Live action from the director of you, Elf. You know that's your assignment, right? You gotta write a review on 
Oh, don't worry. I'll I'll be there with <laughs> tears in my eyes. With the bare necessities. Oh, that's right. Mm. Uh, well, before we get a little too out of uh, hand with our uh, jungle puns, mm-hmm. um, why don't we talk about, we talked a little bit about Corey Stahl as the Derek Cross in the Yellow Jacket. Um, let's talk about uh, who is the least memorable Marvel villain. You mean so aside far. from Darren Cross and Ant Man? <laughs> I mean, Jesus, did he not be in this movie at all? He disappears throughout the entire second act. He's just not in it. Well, that's because they plan. They, oh, they, he's scheming off in the corner. And then he comes back and he's got like five guys from Hydra. I'm like, where the fuck did you guys come from? Anyway, to answer your question, if I had to pick, because I ran a, this is one of the first like listicles that Doom Rocket ever did was like top four worst yeah. Marvel villains. Um, if I had to pick one now, mm-hmm. Ultron, James Spader's Ultron. Here, like Ultron's like the most fearsome villain that the Avengers ever faced. Fuck Thanos, fuck everything else. Ultron will ruin your day. And not, and what really frustrates me is that like they, they just kind of had to shuffle things around in order to make it work for them. Hank Pym created Ultron. Would it have killed anybody to have had them actually do that? Were they always going to aim for Ultron? Did they plan this ahead at all? Because if they knew they were making an Ant-Man movie and they knew they were making an Ultron movie, then why couldn't they just made those dots connect, build up towards it? Because we were feeling what was happening in the first phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We were feeling Loki. We knew something was going to happen with this fucking guy. We just knew what something was going to happen with this Tesseract. We just knew something was going to converge and shit was going to hit the fan, and that's why the Avengers ruled. Age of Ultron had no buildup whatsoever. No, it it was, uh, you know, an an Avengers movie is going to come, mm-hmm. and it happens, and mm-hmm. they do an Avenge, and <laughs> then they're sitting around, and they're like, huh, you know, maybe we should um, Avenge have a catalyst for this movie. Yeah, and then Tony Stark's just like, I get this. Uh, this robot thing I was thinking of. Uh-huh. All right. Well, uh, what, what what happens if you plug him into Jarvis and he goes sentient? And oh, then, then we have a movie. Well, then we also have an Infinity Stone that's been stuck inside a MacGuffin. Yeah. For five movies, you know, and, and of course, by the way, Loki's scepter is just hanging out in Stark Tower for five movies. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, you know, we have like one little you know Easter egg, you know, stinger ending with. The twins, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, who, by the way, don't amount to shit in Age of Ultron. But the most egregious part of Ultron is Ultron. All gripes aside, James Spader's Ultron seemed really fucking menacing in those trailers. He's like, I'm going to show you something beautiful. You know, and he sounds like he's going to like really fuck some shit up. There his. are no strings on me. There are no strings on me. Right! Like, you watch that trailer and everything's... I watched a football game so I could watch that trailer on Mm -hmm. time. You know? That's how much I was pumped for this movie. Like, I didn't even care about the thematic gripes at that point. I just wanted to see James Ultron talk to me. James Ultron. James Ultron. (laughs) So... Robo Spader. So we get him, and and he was so James Spader in this movie. It was, yeah. It was like they just gave James Spader a check, a bottle of booze, mm-hmm. and said, uh, "Walk around in this all day." Just uh, like 
talk like you're uh, you're mad at these dudes. Mm-hmm. Um, you can he's stupid. Yeah, that's the long and the short of it. Yeah, he was so like. He was like, oh, for pity's sake, like when the Hulk throws him out of the jet or whatever. Anyway, well, who's your least favorite or most easily forgettable Marvel villain? Uh, that would be uh, Sam Rockwell as what? Justin Hammer. Hammer? Justin Hammer, Man? Hammer in Iron uh, Man 2. With, you know, his uh, real quick uh, number two there, real close number two of uh, Whiplash. Yeah, Mick Wellworld. Mickey Mickey Rourke, with his late career resurgence and his inability to be in a movie without a pet. Yeah, had to have a pet. Expendables, he's got his own actual little dog with him. That's the same dog, I think, from Once Upon a Time in Mexico, by the way. Oh, it is. Absolutely. Is it? Because he's just always got to take his dog with him wherever he goes. Got to have a dog. And, you know, he's I want my bird. But what he really wanted to say was... I gotta go feed my dog. Yeah, uh, and and yeah, but I don't I don't remember Justin Hammer's point in that movie at all. You barely remembered his name just now. I just knew it was Hammer something. When I heard that Sam Rockwell was going to be the villain uh, in Iron Man Two, I was kind of all about it because I I do like Sam Rockwell. A lot. I do too. I think you like him a little more than I do. I know that you're really big into Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. I still will argue to my dying breath that I think it's a really crappy film. Um, but going beyond that, uh, Sam Rockwell is a sharp actor. Yep. He has great timing. And not only that, though, but he's sincere. When you see him perform, you can just feel energy radiating off of him. You don't get that with a lot of people, especially when they're trying to be menacing. Like, you look at Tim Roth and the Incredible Hulk as the abomination. The only thing that was the abomination was his performance. It was mm-hmm. piss poor. Sing! Bing, ding, ding. But um, Sam Rockwell, you know... As a foil for T- Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark, yeah, I thought it was pretty okay. And there were moments that I enjoyed in Iron Man 2. We own it. It's in the house. I'll watch it if I'm X amount of hungover. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I feel you. You don't remember it. You scarcely remember it. Yeah. I, I, but I would argue, though, that they were more effective as villains than Ben Kingsley and Guy Pierce as the Mandarin in Iron Man 3. I, you know, I'm, I'm gonna... Uh... Go on a limb and say, I need to give Iron Man 3 a second pass uh, with the knowledge of the, uh, the bait and switch and give it another chance just to see if it feels any better that way. You know what's funny is that I have not watched that movie since I first saw it in the theater. That's right. It's one of the few Marvel movies I have not seen more than once. Yeah. Except for Ant-Man. Today, I just uh-huh. watched it again. Um, I, that's the biggest problem. We can talk about this on another episode, but mm-hmm. the biggest problem with... The MCU right now is... They're villains. They're villains. They've got Thanos waiting in space somewhere. Standing over here. We've got Loki just any time they need to bring him back to screw things up, they will. He's going to be one of the bigger problems or architects of problems for Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. And then, but you going into Civil War... The, we, we, they ran out of villain ideas, so they're just like, smash them together. <laughs> exactly. Just smash the heroes together. <laughs> well, uh, before we start smashing figures together, mm-hmm. uh, we might as well uh, do some plugs. Um, make sure, if you have an opportunity, to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Rate it. Review it. Tell your friends about it. Help share us, it. Share it. Help us get out there. Uh, follow us on social media. 
at DoomRocket underscore, at Jared Jones underscore, and at BirdMoney on Twitter. In the meantime, we got the hookup. Holler if you hear me. We have been Anti Monitor, and this is Doom Rocket. With the heartbreak open, so much you can't hide. Put on a little makeup, makeup. Make sure they get you good side, good side. If the words unspoken get stuck in your throat, send a treasure token, token. Write it on a pound note, pound note. Something inside.